Like, is ChatGPT going to pardon Trump? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I didn't ask it yet. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on today's incredible panel. Returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, sitting here in studio with me, Lene Erickson. Lene is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics Program at Third Way. She also served on President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Lene, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome back. So good to see you. And what the audience can't see is that Ron and I are twinning right now. (laughs) We are definitely twinning. That is a long story. And also sitting here with us at the table and making her Politicology debut is Amy Walter. Amy is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. She provides weekly political analysis for the PBS NewsHour Politics Monday segment. She's also a regular Sunday panelist on Meet the Press and CNN's Inside Politics. She previously hosted the weekly nationally syndicated program Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway from WNYC and PRX and is the former political director of ABC News. But most importantly, Mm. she's a member of the Bad News Babes, the press team in the Congressional Women's Softball Game. Amy. I'm glad. Thank you. I'm (laughs) glad you brought that up. The game is coming up July 12th, everyone. You can buy your tickets, see women members. Uh, No. Really? I think the men's game is, but Mm. that's for another day. Mm. Um, But ours is so fun. Women members of Congress, Dem and Republicans, only bipartisan sporting event versus <laughs> the women members of the press. We uh, we had a tough game last year, so we're coming back for um, revenge. Well, way to represent. Thank Welcome you. to Politicology. Thank you. Happy to, to be here. here. Uh, and on such a slow news week, mm, I wish we really had to scrape the barrel to figure mm-hmm. out what we're going to talk about this week. Up first, we'll discuss the reactions to Donald Trump's indictment on federal charges for his mishandling of classified documents and obstructing the government's efforts to collect those documents. Then we're going to look at the politics of privacy, including controversy over a federal program that allows the government to engage in surveillance and a new report about the intelligence community buying private data about Americans and how distrust in government legitimate and manufactured, is shaping our politics. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to discuss the Supreme Court's decision rejecting racially gerrymandered voting maps in Alabama that diluted black voters' power. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes, and we'll dig in right after this. A reading from the Book of Lamentations. Friend, reports state that I could receive a maximum sentence of 400 years in prison, despite being a totally and completely innocent man. I honestly cannot believe I just typed those words to you. It sounds like something Stalin or Mao did to eliminate their opposition, but instead, it's happening here in America. Communism has finally come to our shores. We are no longer living in the country of Washington and Lincoln. For the first time in American history, the federal government has used its prosecutorial powers to charge the leading opponent of the current regime. While today is certainly a grim and dark day, do not lose faith. As I said once before, with a dark cloud over our beloved country, I have no doubt, nevertheless, that we will make America, say it with me, great again. Please make a contribution to Peacefully Stand With Me and save the greatest country in history for a 1,500% impact. <clears throat> That's the fundraising email Trump's team sent out on Tuesday afternoon. 
while he was being arraigned on federal charges over his mishandling of classified documents after he left the White House and his obstruction of the government's efforts to reclaim their documents. After Trump's arraignment in Florida, he flew to New Jersey and held a fundraiser at his Bedminster golf course. And in the speech, he misrepresented the Presidential Records Act. He also called the indictment, quote, the most evil and heinous abuse of power in the history of the country. He said that, quote, a corrupt sitting president had his top political opponent arrested on fake and fabricated charges of which he and numerous other presidents would be guilty right in the middle of a presidential election in which he is losing very badly. Lots of mistakes in there. Uh, it currently looks like 2024 rematch of Trump and Biden is a toss-up, and the facts of the case point to Trump sitting all alone in his obstruction. I want to talk about the messaging today and the politics uh, and the responses because we just walked through all of the uh, the legal stuff with George Conway earlier this week. So, Amy, I'd love to start with you just at a very high level. What impact do you think this messaging is going to have First on the base in the primary, we'll turn to the general politics in a minute, but let's talk about the primary field first and, and how the message is going to play. So I think what we're starting to see is there's the predictable rally around Donald Trump, because if you ask the question this way, do you think that Trump is being unfairly prosecuted, persecuted, attacked? Republican voters will say, absolutely. Do you think a lot of these charges are trumped up, made up, and are they uh, similar is he being charged with things that Hillary Clinton did not? Absolutely. Do you think he'd be a good candidate mm. for re-election? I mean, right? Mm. Now, they say they still would like to vote for him. He is still winning among Republican primary voters. But what I'm starting to pick up in a lot of the reporting that's out there, listening to people who've been in Iowa, um, reading uh, – other reports from states like Georgia, you can hear in voters' voices, Republican voters, even the most conservative, even the most supportive of Donald Trump, a sort of weariness mm. and exhaustion. Now, it is not to the place yet where they've said, okay, I'm breaking with him, but I don't think it's going to look like that. Mm. I think the assumption has been for a long time that there are going to be these charges, these legal impediments, if you will, <laughs> that are going to pile up and pile up. And then there's going to be one straw that's just going to break it all and Trump's going to collapse. I don't think it works like that. I think that it's clear that there's some exhaustion out there. If you are his Republican opponent, one of his Republican opponents, your opportunity is to latch on to that exhaustion mm -hmm. and say, you're right. Of course, he's getting persecuted. Of course, the liberal media hates him. Of course, the DOJ is being politicized. But you know what? Like, can't, this is uh, this is a lot of baggage, yeah. right? Yeah. And nobody said that yet, but you can see them sort of gearing up to say that. Yeah. Um, so this idea that there's just like one punch that's going to take him out, I don't think that is true. But I do think that you can kind of feel the weariness and now and the weariness and for the opponents, they've got to be able to take this moment in time and make themselves a compelling alternative. So there's been a mixed bag of responses from elected Republicans. Speaker Kevin McCarthy came to his defense. He said that it was a, quote, very dark day in America, 
Um, when McCarthy was asked about Trump keeping boxes of documents in a bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, McCarthy responded that a bathroom door locks, uh, <laughs> LeMay. Also, uh, uh, as we were discussing earlier, Kevin McCarthy clearly does not know that bathroom doors lock from the inside. The boxes, they lock themselves. <laughs> Jim Jordan has insisted that Donald Trump declassified all of the documents he took with him. Uh, but we've seen former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchison and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, both of whom are running for the Republican nomination and hovering close to 1% in national polls, condemn Trump after the indictment. Um, Christie called Trump's conduct awful and said that Trump's actions outlined in the indictment are vanity run amok. And Senator Mitt Romney, for his part, expressed anger with Trump. And here's what he had to say. I'm angry. Um, the country is going to go through tumult as a result of one thing. President Trump didn't turn over military documents when he was asked to do so. Why did he just turn the documents in? Had he done so, he certainly would not have been indicted. I'm sure his lawyers told him that. What was the purpose? So, Lene, I'm curious about, first of all, what you make of the 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 difference between the responses among the Republican electeds, especially on the Hill, um, whether there's sort of cracks beginning to show in their support. There's there there. I think, as Amy said, it's like, huh, we're trying to figure out where exactly the right line is here without going too far. Um, but also at the same time, the tension between uh, what Romney said, which is the country's going to go through tumult as a result of this, which is, you know, we can turn to the gravity of that when we get to Biden not saying anything about this, et cetera. But uh, keeping the focus on the Republicans' response right now, how are you reading this? You know, I think Asa Hutchinson and Mitt Romney are such lovely humans and their impact on the current Republican Party is negative zero. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, and that's been true for a while uh -huh. because they broke earlier, um, maybe not as early as I would have liked, but they they broke a long time ago. And so I don't think that they have, they don't bring anybody else along with them, either voters or elected. It's like you knew what Mitt Romney was going to say about this. It didn't impact his other Senate senatorial friends. Um, so it's kind of like when you're like, I got Murkowski, and you're like, cool, that's it. Like, she doesn't bring a whole bunch of other people along with her. Um, I did think it was interesting that, you know, obviously Kevin McCarthy is like, has decided to kneel at the golden toilet of Trump long ago. Um, but he also had all these dynamics this week that were playing in that made it so that he could do nothing but support Trump because mm -hmm. what Kevin McCarthy was dealing with in his day job was a whole bunch of crazy, the most right of right of his caucus, literally shutting down the floor, voting down a rule to move to their like save the gas stoves bill, yeah. which they all you know supported. But in protest of the deal he made with Biden around the around the debt ceiling. So he literally couldn't run the House floor for two weeks because these people were like, no, we don't like what you did. We don't like the fact that you didn't tank the economy um, and you agreed to this spending deal with Biden um, and we are going to take the power back. So they didn't oust him, but they they shut down business. And so he's busy over here trying to deal with his crazy people, get them in line. And then the Trump thing's happening. Like, He's already, you know, trying to soothe Matt Gates. Like there was yeah. nothing else he could do. And so I think we knew what he was going to say. I do think that there were some other senators that were kind of like, mm, mm -hmm. in, in the attitude that Amy was talking about, that was like, yeah, I mean, I, I don't 
love this. Like Joni Ernst said something like that. There were some other folks that haven't broken before that were like, it's not my favorite. <laughs> and I think that that was more interesting, but also they, they're walking the same line, right? Yeah. Chris Christie went way beyond the line. Yeah. And also for that reason is going to be inconsequential, I think, yeah. unless he really takes it to him in the deba d debate stage, which I think would be fun, but yeah. I don't know that he's even going to get there. And because Chris Christie basically said, Trump's a bad person. He only cares about himself. Like, this is bad. And that's too far yeah. for these Republican voters. you got to yeah. pull it back to this, like, mm, of course he's being persecuted. And also, maybe we, we want to talk about something else now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know. And, you know, the yeah. other interesting thing about the floor, speaking about the Republicans— it puts those vulnerable House Republicans, the ones who sit in those Biden districts, everybody knows there are 18 of them, DCCC is targeting all of them, and they definitely wiped their brow after the debt ceiling, mm -hmm. right? Like, whoa, right. we got a bipartisan deal. Everybody signed off of it. Whew, great. Because it helped them not just, as Lene pointed out, have an, a uh, default-induced economic collapse, but they were able then to show distinction with Trump. You can't right. call me MAGA. Right. Don't right. call me Trump. Trump wanted us to default. I didn't do that. But now you have Matt Gates and Jordan et al. Let's bring up the FBI. Let's mm -hmm. defund the FBI. Let's do a, well, with Schiff, let's kick Schiff off of committees mm -hmm. because of his fake Russia witch hunt, right? Every time they force those vulnerable Republicans to make a vote that defends Trump, it puts them in that awkward position as they're trying to run for re-election. Yeah. yeah, and to Lene's point about the Gastos thing, this was the Freedom Caucus essentially saying, yeah, okay, it's over, but it's not over yet, right? We're, we're, we're here and we're not going anywhere and, like, you're going right. to have to deal Except with Except what us. are yeah. they going to do? This right. is the thing about them. They, they can do something, like shut down the floor, but, mm -hmm. okay, now what? Yeah. Well, are you going to overturn? Oh, we're what, going to get rid of McCarthy. Yeah, right. Oh, really? With who? Who's, right. who's your Who's your person? Yeah. No, but what they are going to do is set up a government shutdown because well, they've now said, the "Oh, question. hey, remember those uh, appropriations mm -hmm. numbers we just agreed to in the uh, deal that everybody yeah, signed off so on? We're not, we're not so doing much. that. Yeah. We're doing less than that. And now they're trying to get the open seat. There was a, a representative who had to retire. They're trying to get that open seat on the appropriations committee for themselves. And I'm really worried about mm. that. That was going to be my look ahead, what people aren't paying attention to, because it's scary and it shuts, it could potentially shut down the government in September. And we've seen, we've seen all of these um, non-calamitous effects of them being able to get this deal, but they're essentially reneging on it now. Amy, before we pivot over to uh, Biden non-response, non-saying anything um, uh, about this indictment, um, it's way too early to start talking about polling vis-a-vis -vis the general election 2024. It's way too early even to really start talking about polling um, in the primary, except that there have is been it, a couple. Is well, it ever here's too the thing. Early? Here's the thing, right? Well, politicology <laughs> listeners know not to pay attention to national polls pretty much ever. Mm. And that, you know, because that, that's not the way we elect a president. But there have been prior to the indictment. Um, there were just a couple of polls out, I think, in Arizona, perhaps one in Georgia, definitely one in Nevada that were showing essentially DeSantis performing better against Biden, maybe plus up one, uh, something like that, but all within the margin and Trump down um, a few. I don't want to read these polls as being meaningful for the uh, for the primary, but they're meaningful for um, decisions people are making well, that's now. Right. right. So can you unpack that a little that's bit? Right. How, how, I mean, they're meaningful in that. Yes. Look, this is what 
the DeSantis team would like to do. And these polls, many of these polls that have been released were by Republican organizations that are supportive of someone not named Donald Trump being the nominee. For example. So I get I get that. And the the case they'll make to really the donor class much more than the voting class is, you guys, look, you've got to keep putting money behind either DeSantis or whoever the alternative is, because it's pretty clear that anybody can beat Biden except Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge with using that with voters and sometimes even with donors is, one, it's not like it's a big margin. It's not like DeSantis is up by 45 and Trump is losing by 30, right? It's like all within the margin. The second is, again, even with donors, yeah, so let's talk about polls for a minute. Remember the polls in 2016 that Mm. said Trump couldn't win? And remember the polls in 2020 that said Biden was going to win in a landslide? So what are you telling me? I don't believe any of this. And then as you look, you're right, the national polls don't tell us. But at, at the end of the day, there is not going to be a number that is going to get Republican voters and even some of the donor class to say, whew, well, thank you for giving me that poll because now that I have that, (laughs) I am convinced, super clear, I am convinced that DeSantis is the person and we need to go all in. And as I said, there's not going to be this magic moment where it's all going to become like, ah, clear that we've got to go in a different direction. I think that's why, yes, the debate stage is important. I agree with Lene. Who knows who's going to show up, who's not going to show up, who's going to make it, et cetera. And then the second thing is it, it ha- something has to happen in Iowa. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if if Trump wins Iowa, a state that is really tailor-made for a, a non-kind of mm-hmm. Trump candidate, mm-hmm. then, okay. It's really made for Pence. It, that's what they think yeah. for sure. Yeah. But – a lot of folks want to make that breakthrough there. And then at least you have a toehold. It's not going to say that Trump's going right. to lose if he loses right. Iowa. But if he wins Iowa, I don't There's know how you yeah. – yeah. Well, especially because – and I think we've talked about this before. The way that Republicans use their, their nomination is that um, if you win the state, you get all – of the delegates from That's that right. state. It's a winner-take-all system. Whereas, you know, yeah. Democrats, it's it's proportional. Mm-hmm. So um, if you recall the debacle in Iowa um, last time we <laughs> oh, Democrats had it. Uh, Pete Buttigieg remembers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Pete, Pete Buttigieg technically won, I think, but real yeah. close to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. A and week they, later, he and, won. Right. <laughs> but they've got they got almost exactly the same number of delegates out of that because it's proportional. Whereas, you know, the way Trump won last time was he started rolling in. And if you take the state, even if somebody else gets 29 percent and you get 30, they get nothing. And that's really hard to compete with, especially because everyone and their mother is now running for the Republican nomination. Yeah. I heard um, this morning that the Miami yes. mayor threw his hat in the yes. ring. Like, oh, yeah, didn't that's know who right. that guy was. Yeah. Don't think he's going to be the next he's, president. But he's not, but he's good. He's I'm polished and great. he's Good. I'm, I'm into performer. it. Yeah. Let's put them on the debate stage. But they're going to have what we had last time, which is maybe we have to have two nights of debates because mm. we have 40 people and we can't put <laughs> them all on the stage. <laughs> so that means all you have to get is about a third and then you win everything. And yeah. it's really hard for me to see how Donald Trump doesn't come through with, you know, uh, the plurality yeah. in a lot of these states. Obviously, Iowa's the key. But even there, mm-hmm. you know, there's got to be a third of Republican voters that are with him, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I imagine that to be true. So for his part, um, President Biden and his top aides have been 
completely silent on Trump's indictment. And candidly, I'm really happy to see that. Yeah. I think uh, it is exactly the right thing for him to do. Um, at the start of his presidency, Biden said he would not discuss DOJ investigations, particularly those about Trump. And so far, the White House, um, his campaign and the DNC have all been quiet about the investigations into Trump. And I have to say, Lene, that's like remarkably disciplined for the Democratic that's Party. That's true. We're not good at discipline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like remarkably disciplined. Politico is reporting um, that they are deeply wary of any perception that Biden's tried to influence the investigations. And I think they are right to be deeply wary of that. Some of Biden's allies are concerned that Biden could be missing a chance to underscore the seriousness of the moment and deliver a major blow to the Trump campaign. So I'd love for you to walk through what the intra-party politics um, look like over this right now and whether do you think that discipline's going to hold Um or if uh, if everyone will recognize that piling on Trump right now, especially from partisan voices, is only going to fuel not just the fundraising, but the the distrust in government, which we're going to talk about in the next segment, and and the you know the um, idea that there's a lot of hypocrisy going on and and the country's in a really dangerous way. You know, I think that most Democrats realize that um, this is a really scary moment in that uh, we do have this person running for president as the front runner and uh you know the the current president is also the front runner and so there there are dynamics here that are really really sensitive and yet we had this indictment move forward because the behavior was so incomprehensible. And I think, um, you know, honestly, if the Biden folks could like not ever have to deal with this, they'd probably be happy because I think they're they're very worried about the, the message it sends to have the Biden administration going after Trump. And so they're making it really clear that this is not the Biden administration. This is an independent prosecutor. And um, and, you know, I think I think that's smart. I hope it's it holds. Um, but because I think, you know, there there's this phrase that you use in law school. It's called race ipsa loquitur, which mm. means the thing speaks for itself. Mm. That's where we're at. Yeah. Right. Like we don't need somebody to be like, oh, and also, did you read the yeah. 67th? you know, charge in here, yeah. like the yeah. thing speaks for itself. Yeah. And if we've got this Trump judge, like ruling against him, that's a much better spokesperson oh, than yeah. like AOC or Biden or whoever else yeah. the Democratic Party. So I think, um, you know, I think they're right to to be quiet and, and I hope it holds. Yeah. So what happens though, when the investigation into Biden's handling of classified documents, right? right? And they right. say, oh, actually his are fine. It was fine. It was, he did it accidentally and the Corvette, we don't know how they got there. And but they gave him right back. No right. obstruction, which no seems to be like the real linchpin right. of this prosecution. So. That, and, and then you have to do the, okay, double standard. And we go back through it all And Americans again. aren't lawyers. No. Like voters aren't expected, no. you can't be expected to know no. the law at this no. level of intricacy. I don't think they are, but they also realize there's a difference between like packing some stuff up and then being like, oh, mm, I wasn't supposed to have right. this here. It's back versus right. the step by step by step by step by step collusion yeah, right. of the Trump yeah, folks. Right. So I, I think that's kind of common that's, sense, but but it's scary. And that's why they're walking so very gingerly. That case? Yeah. That there's a difference between because low Biden information and, voters are yeah. going to sit back and when it comes time to vote, like a couple months before, uh, they who, all who do knows, it, right? They're, they're they all, all going to do, do it, it, but they're going to look back and see. No, no, no. They say all, but oh, both yeah, yeah, sides yeah. Sure. do it, that's, right? That's what I mean. That's yeah. Right. yeah, Hillary had those emails, that's right. and yep. they're the all corrupt. Biden How did we and, end up in a place right, where right. we got these two? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. and, well, 
I think it's it's better when we we keep pairing Biden with Pence. We're like, there's the Biden-Pence version of uh, I accidentally had some documents. Smart. And then there's the Trump version. And I think we should never say the word Hillary in our whole lives. Yeah. Like, I listen, <laughs> I have, I still have the swag. I'm here for it. I'm with her. But like it going back, I mean, I heard yesterday, like, yeah, but what about those, you know, 33,000 deleted emails? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going back in time to a place I don't ever want to be again. Like, we do not need to litigate the Clinton stuff. People already think that Hillary and Bill did not follow rules in general and did not think that rules applied to them. I don't need to fight and, that. And fight. got away with it. Like, they think they got away with it. Yeah. Let's leave bygones be bygones in in the yeah. Clinton folks. And then and I think it's much more easy to defend Biden and, because people don't actually think that he doesn't think rules apply to him. They think he's kind of messy yeah. and like maybe wasn't super careful, but I don't think they have the same like insidious that they feel towards the yeah. Clintons, and and that applies to both Clintons, that they were actively using government to yeah. advance their own cause. Yeah, although the colloquially called uh, Investigations Committee is really working on that with the oh, Hunter yeah. Biden stuff. So uh, oh, watch the this the Hunter space, Biden right? stuff is not helpful. Yeah, Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so one of the political realities here, um, and it's not an argument against the indictment, but the reality is this is going to lead to increased polarization. Like, Full stop, hands down. We're already seeing this from Republicans that they believe the indictment's politically motivated and a huge portion of the Republican electorate still believes 2020 was stolen from Trump. Uh, and this is almost definitely going to lead to calls that 2024 was stolen if he gets the general election and loses. So there's this chance that uh, Donald Trump could win in 2024 and be both the president-elect and a defendant in one or more criminal cases, he could be in jail by then. We don't, we have no idea. I, yeah. I, like, like the, this is the, the the best case scenario here. Like, there are several like decent good cases scenario here for you know the the rule of law. This is a good day for the rule of law. But there are also really some terrifying, and I don't use that word lightly. Terrifying, bad cases here, bad outcomes, which uh, like would lead to not just a constitutional crisis, but would actually break us, I think. How we do... always came to, seem to be skirting on these. Like, yeah. just think about, I, I go back and, and look at even 2020, even before we got into the the election was stolen and January 6th, 42,000 votes go the other way in Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin. And we are at 270, 270. Yep. And we have the President of the United States being picked by Congress. What? what what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, America does not know how the whole tied electoral college works. No. Maybe you learned it in fifth grade. <laughs> probably don't remember it. But, and it's not the, you know, it's like, oh, each delegation gets yeah. one vote. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Alaska yeah. gets as many votes as California? <laughs> Correct. Whoa, 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 what? <laughs> or, and that's not even a thing. Like, d are people going around being like, oh, yeah, right now the House delegations are exactly. split between this and this? Like, that's, yeah. that's the thing I had to look up and I work here. Like, I don't, it's not a, it's not a well-known fact. Right. So we're all, we always seem to, and it's like we get really, really close. We're like, whew, okay, well, this year, okay, we didn't yeah. have that. and But next year, so it is, it's almost like every year we look at, okay, well, what is going to be the potential thing that breaks yeah. us or the constitutional yeah. crisis? And you're exactly right, yeah. this idea of a even just a candidate for president who is under indictment. Right, right. That's first thing. Start, yeah. Yeah. Then candidate for president who is currently def def a defendant. We have a case going on mm -hmm. while he's running and then potentially. 
And that he could win. And like, then could win. And then does he pardon? I mean, it's all. It's all oh. a gigantic explosion of question yeah. marks. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, it's interesting, too. Even in 2022, we had that, like, uh-huh. oh, shoof, by the skin of our teeth moment because we had the election deniers who were running for the offices that would count the votes. Yeah. And we got through that one and we're like, phew. And now we're yeah. like, huh, okay, what's the next few yeah. moment here? And yep. and I have no idea how this one is going to play out. But, you know, I mean, if Trump is in office, he's going to pardon himself, which is a whole thing. They're certainly going to make it, I think you and George were talking about this, a, a litmus test mm-hmm. for all the other candidates to say they'd pardon him. You know, Vivek Ramaswamy's like way up front on that one, mm-hmm. but now he's making everybody else do it. And it's going to be their equivalent of our version of my nightmare when um, they asked, you know, do you support open? Open borders and all mm. of the candidates on stage raised their hand, and I just mm. got under my bed in the fetal position. Mm. Um, and but that—that's the dynamic. Once you're on the debate stage, you're not going to be like, "No, I'm not going to pardon him." Yeah. Of course, I support open borders. Of course, I support <laughs> pardoning Donald Trump. And so, the, you know, what that means any Republican yeah. win yeah. is a Donald Trump pardon. I don't see how we don't at least get to there. Here's a good mm. question, actually, just mm. like lightning question. We look back on the Ford uh, Nixon right. pardon as like a really proud moment exactly. of American yeah. history. But it sure wasn't at that time. So That's yeah. right. how do you think history might judge a pardon in this case? Oh, Lord. Are we going to have I a mean, history? I just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, assuming we make it through. Right. Like, first of all, we got to yeah. make it through AI taking over oh, and yeah, destroying yeah, 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 humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how much time we have left, <laughs> actually. We may not even get like, oh, 50 years from now. <laughs> like, is ChatGPT going to pardon Trump? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I didn't ask it yet. That's actually what's going to happen. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thank you for that, Lene. The, uh, the, reason, the reason I opened with that email uh, that Trump sent is because it was just right on cue. And also uh, several months ago when we were talking about this, I, I said, you know, like this is one of the best, politically one of the best things that could happen to him. Very, very bad day for Donald Trump, the person, but for the campaign, enormous boon, especially for yeah, didn't fundraising. Didn't they say they raised two and a half million? I'm, sure, or I'm, I'm sure they something did. Something like that. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so the, you know, this is, uh, any good political marketer will tell you, if you don't have a good boogeyman, you're not going anywhere. And this is like, the best boogeyman you could possibly have. Um, and uh, there's, there's one other thing I wanted to cover here. That's the the Coke Network's advertising against Trump in the primary. Um, they gave CNBC an exclusive look at a round of digital ads. I know we're all shrugging. Targeting <laughs> primary voters in Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, and Nevada. They're focused on getting Republican primary voters to vote for anyone but Trump. They think a 2020 rematch will lead to a second Biden term. Here's a clip of one of those ads titled, No Thanks. Trump did a lot of good things as president, but this time, Trump can't win. Swing voters say no. 60% of Americans don't want him. In 2024, Biden will beat Trump. We need new leadership. The always insightful Tim Miller wrote a piece for The Bulwark where he argued that these ads are, quote, atrocious. And he's totally <laughs> right uh, that they won't be effective for a couple of reasons. Part of its style. They um, feel, you know, like people are being lectured by the old guard D.C. elites that they already don't like. Um, there's the unelectability argument, which Amy walked through earlier, which is completely ineffective. Um, uh, there's a problem with the audience here. I don't understand why they would leak these ads to CNBC uh, 
if they're targeting primary voters, like it's the it's the it's the moderate wing of the moderate wing of the party. I don't I don't it makes zero sense. Um, but what do you make of this push from Coke, the network? Um, and, you know, typically I have to say, uh, whatever you think about their politics, the, the Coke um, octopus is usually pretty effective at what it decides to do. This is this doesn't make any sense to me, Amy. It's um it is almost word for word what you could distill from focus groups, Republican focus groups from last fall and earlier this year. And they would say exactly that. Trump's great. He was a great president. I don't know. You know, I don't think he can win or maybe would be nice to have somebody new, fresh face, right? Yeah. Which is lovely. But literally transcribing a focus group <laughs> into an ad <laughs> you've got to you've got to go a little bit deeper than yeah, that right yeah. and get to the heart of what it is what is this exhaustion uh about and uh, again it's not simply that oh my gosh biden's going to win it's that this guy is not um <laughs> this guy's going to could potentially go to jail right like mm-hmm. let's be really clear yeah, you can like what he did as president, but this is some serious stuff, yeah. right? If you really, really want to go at it. And if you believe what a lot of uh, Republican pollsters believe or and folks who've been studying the Republican electorate believe that there is basically a 35% core Trump vote that mm-hmm. nothing you say mm-hmm. can move them. That is still a significant Huge. portion of the electorate that you can move off of yeah. him, right? And do you move it off of him by being uh, – I mean, this is the mm-hmm. internal debate this right is, now, the Chris Christie, the, right? Yeah. How do you get underneath that? And so um, Lene will appreciate – this is my new theory um, or maybe analogy as somebody who comes from a place that has a lot of snow. Mm. I do. I think you've shoveled probably before. Sh- shoveled a lot of snow. Okay. So, you know – when you're shoveling, say, the driveway, and you yeah. didn't realize that underneath it had, had already gotten an ice layer, yeah. right? And you're it's like, the worst. oh, it's the mm. worst. And so you have two choices. One is you just kind of like chip, 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 try to get little chunks off. Or you find that seam. Mm. There's that one seam you can get, and then the whole thing comes mm. out in one big mm. chunk. And so it feels like what Republicans are doing right now is like just <laughs> Chipping around as opposed to there's got to be a seam there Mm -hmm. somewhere to go underneath it and go, this is the thing. And nobody's found that seam because it's not, as I said, there's not one issue you're just going to say, oh, okay, if we convince enough Republicans it's X, they're going to come with me. As a northern Minnesotan, I uh, I think that is absolutely physically accurate Thank about you. the snow. Thank you. Um, but you know, it also it I think that seam is not electability. Yeah, yeah, I and that's right. right because that's right. they forget. Like mm-hmm. this is this is an ad that could be if the names were different, potentially very effective with Democratic primary voters. Totally. Because when you ask Democratic primary voters, you know, do you want somebody who completely agrees with you and the issues, or somebody who can win? We vote like pundits, mm. and this is why we got Joe Biden, mm. because we're like, you know what? Mm, mm. You don't 
like light my hair on fire, but I think you might be our best, our best bet because we're always thinking, okay, who is the swing voter that this person needs to appeal to and who would appeal to that person? And, you know, it's why folks like Elizabeth Warren and even Kamala really struggled because Mm -hmm. not because people didn't like them, but because people thought swing voters wouldn't like them. Republicans do not think that way. They consistently say, I want the person that I want. And and then they believe in their hearts that then that person can win. And they've been right in yeah. a lot of instances when the punditry has been wrong. So I just think it's the wrong argument to make mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. And in the weariness is more of the argument mm-hmm, to make. Yeah. Like, listen, I didn't think that the Republican base could ever get tired. Like, you know, but but we saw the Democratic base get tired. Yeah. Like, we're all do tired. Do we want another yeah. – ca- do we want oh, the do. chaos? Yeah. And so maybe that's the, that's the fatigue. thing. The, the chaos yeah. and the fatigue and the not knowing yeah. and the – like, yeah, there was some good stuff, but man, it comes with so much of the baggage. Is that it? Yeah. Obviously, the San- the DeSantis team thinks, no, 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 it's all about cultural issues. Right. Mm-hmm. Show him as out of touch on mm-hmm. CRT and mm-hmm. wokeness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's it either. either. No. Yeah. But maybe I'm tired of talking about this. Yeah. yeah. Could be it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I know I'm tired of talking about this. <laughs> but, all right. But they, they might be too. Yeah. Right. That's a good segue. So let's talk about privacy, which is not just a topic that I've been thinking about a lot over the last um, six months or so, but also as it relates to distrust in government and just distrust in institutions uh, writ large, uh, which is a which is a such a huge feature of the politics we were just discussing in the, in the primary. So specifically, there were a couple of privacy stories that caught my attention uh, this week. Um, on Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing about reauthorizing surveillance powers, is known as Section 702. Section 702 permits warrantless surveillance against foreign threats. This is a 9-11 era provision, um, and it's set to expire at the end of the year unless Congress renews it. And senators across the aisle warned Biden administration officials that they're not going to renew the surveillance authorities without substantial changes because when the intelligence community surveils foreign threats, they also collect communications with Americans. And that data goes into a database that law enforcement can search using phone numbers, email addresses, lots of other identifiers. All of that can happen without a warrant. There are supposed to be restrictions on it. The FBI can search the database when they have evidence of crimes or for foreign intelligence purposes. But A recently unsealed court document found that the FBI had misused the database more than 278,000 times between 2020 and early 2021. Um, They searched for thousands of donors to a congressional candidate, and they searched for people protesting after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, Senator John Ossoff of Georgia grilled FBI officials among his colleagues uh, over their use of the database for domestic law enforcement. And we've got a clip of that exchange. It's the case, is it not, that the FBI can query this database for U.S. person communications, simply seeking evidence of a crime. It does not have to be a national security investigation, correct? It is correct, uh, Senator. Thank you for the question that the FBI can search using a U.S. person identifier for either foreign intelligence, or evidence of a crime, but there must be a reasonable basis to believe that there is information in the Section 702 data that would be responsive to such a query. 
Yeah, why should there not be a warrant requirement for these searches, which are known as crime-only searches, whereby FBI agents are seeking the communications of Americans, either considering opening a criminal investigation or in the midst of a predicated criminal investigation? Why should there not be a warrant requirement for such a U.S. person query? So, so stepping back uh, for a moment, if I may, just to provide just some, for a moment, very quickly, uh, Section 702 is a foreign intelligence tool. It's yes. not a law enforcement right. tool. The, the so why is it used for domestic law enforcement purposes? It, it has been used exceedingly rarely where a query using a U.S. person identifier uh, would have identified information that did not have a foreign intelligence purpose. So outside of the national security realm, not involving a terrorism or espionage or cyber charge or, or investigation. Yeah, so it can be used for this purpose, and it has been used for this purpose. 2022, six, it was six, 16 different times. 14 of those times where it was used for evidence of a crime only were where the U.S. government had an affirmative discovery obligation to search. Well, we'll get into those numbers in a yeah. second, but it begs the question, if it's so rare as you state, why not go get a warrant? So this hearing, I chose the John Ossoff clip, by the way, because lots of the other uh, Republican questioners were really bombastic, but were making essentially the same point. And Ossoff was essentially uh, asking the same pointed questions in a more polite way. But the point is to illustrate it's not just Republicans and Democrats too here. And this hearing came after a, uh, Wired reported that the U.S. government has been secretly amassing a large amount of sensitive and intimate information on its own citizens. And this was coming from an official report written more than a year ago by senior advisors for Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, uh, but was just declassified and released last Friday. And this report makes it clear that intelligence agencies are buying information about Americans that they would not be able to directly collect legally because of the Fourth Amendment. And this is because the government's interpretation of, uh, quote unquote, publicly available information includes information that is available for sale. So to put this in real terms, the intelligence community believes that it can persistently track the phones of millions of Americans as long as they buy that information. If they were to go to a service provider and demand access to the location data, they'd need a warrant because it falls under the Fourth Amendment definition of a search. So the report also acknowledges that it's you know easy to de-anonymize and identify individuals. So when you hear about data that's anonymized, that's very easy to decode now. Um, and that can be used to identify everyone who attended a protest or a rally based on their smartphone location or ad tracking records. And uh, it also notes, quote, the government would never have been permitted to compel billions of people to carry location tracking devices on their person at all times to log and track most of their social interactions or to keep flawless records of all their reading habits. Yet smartphones, connected cars, web tracking technologies, the Internet of Things and other innovations have had this effect without government participation. And lastly, uh, for his part, Senator Ron Wyden uh, Democrat of Oregon told Wired, quote, I've been warning for years that if using a credit card to buy an American's personal information voids their Fourth Amendment rights, then traditional checks and balances for government surveillance will crumble. And I don't want to flatten everybody here into the same uh, pancake, but we've seen distrust in government emerge as a driver in our politics. We discussed some of this in the, in the earlier segment. And whether it's Ron Wyden's concerns about uh, buying information or John Ossoff's concerns about surveillance or MAGA Republicans concerned about the deep state and calls to abolish the FBI, there is enormous and growing distrust in institutions and in particular government and, uh, and the government's use of surveillance technologies. And so I wonder, um, 
you know, how both of you are reading this particular phenomenon in politics, the growing trend. Earlier, we talked about how Trump is framing his indictment as a political tactic, right, to try and steal the 2024 election. How do you think this kind of messaging is going to evolve and mutate uh, specifically the people who are already skeptical? And given that Democrats are also questioning the legitimacy of these programs uh, and have very good reason to, especially in the wake of Dobbs, when we're talking about the vulnerability of period tracking app data uh, falling into the hands of people who can prosecute women seeking abortions. Um, this is just like an 800-pound gorilla, I think, in our politics. I'm sorry. I'm ranting a little bit. The ladies are smiling at me. Um, I'll stop talking now, but- No, I, it's okay. I'm going to go I, I, there's live a lot, off the There's grid. a lot here. I, after that <laughs> entire conversation, I was literally like, so anyway, I'm just going to leave here and um, throw all of my devices away and live in a cabin in the main woods and you'll seems never right. see me again, right? Yeah, that um, seems right. Can I build a cabin, a cottage on your on your uh, absolutely. property? Absolutely, <laughs> you absolutely can, and I won't be able to text you because I won't have any sort of devices. Just send the dog with a note attached me, to the collar around yeah. me. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to take this angle, which is seeing this through the eyes of I have a teenager yeah. who has known nothing but this world, mm -hmm. right, and. The assumptions that they make about their, not just their privacy, but just in the ways in which information comes to them mm -hmm. and the way that they have to sort of filter through this. So uh, he knows that we track his phone, but he also has figured out ways, thanks to friends, to how to like hack certain things that I thought we had prevented him from doing, like getting on Snapchat or other things, which mm -hmm. he's found ways around, right? So he sort of accepts both of those at the mm -hmm. same time. He gets inundated with all sorts of information from his friends and their conspiracy theories, as well as whatever he's watching on YouTube, right? And trying to figure out which, what is true and what is not and how to make sense of all of that. Then I will tell you, I went and I spoke at a college and a, a, to a group of students who are in the media program, in specifically, right, undergraduates mm. in that program. How do you guys get your news? Mm, mostly TikTok. Mm. Great. Mm. Well, like, how do you know what's true, what's not mm. true? What do you trust? Do you not trust? Oh, we just know. We have kind of a mm. bullshit meter. And I was like, really? So tell me, he goes, one guy's like, well, why do you think that, um, you know, the New York Times is any better? Remember the New York Times and their great reporting on the Iraq War? Mm. Why do I trust them? Mm. And I said, okay, well, let me ask you this. So if you see something, you're like, hmm. Some TikTok person put that up there. How do I know this is true? And then one of them goes, well, I Google it. And I said, okay, well, then something comes up or as an answer. Another TikTok. And then it's, I said, so if the New York Times came up and said, that's actually correct or not correct, would you believe that? Yeah, sure. Well, why do you not read the New York Times? Like, I'm not. So I think we, th th this is where the conversation to me is so fascinating is, Old people like me, people who were born in the 20th century and who still have a mindset of the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't, yes, I know how to use a smartphone, barely know how to use other social media, et cetera. 
But we still are in this mindset of like there's this box mm. and that that's where mm -hmm. information is mm. versus this generation that they've known nothing but mm. and their way of thinking through it is so very different because this idea of institutions and they mm. should protect our Mm -hmm. information or there are these filters that we should trust that is, will take this information and give us the truth about it. They don't, that's not a world they've ever known. Mm. So that's where this evolving, the, the, this generational shift to me is the most fascinating around some of these issues because they are already skeptical, Yeah, but they've also never had an experience of a filter that they believe is Right. Like this is right and true. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, and I think Amy is taking us to the future, but I just wanted to take us to the yeah. past yeah. because the first when I first came to D.C., um, it was during the George W. Bush administration. And I worked uh, at a place called Alliance for Justice on things like Guantanamo detainees uh -huh. and FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And it is just astounding to me, um, two huge differences between that time and this time. The first is that at that time, we thought the threat was outside the house, right? Yeah. We thought the yeah. bad things that were going to happen mm -hmm. to us were coming from somewhere outside the U.S. So if we could keep a bubble around mm -hmm. the U.S., and then the folks outside, we could be fine with the folks outside not having any rights, which is why we have Guantanamo still. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't want it to apply to us. And I think that's radically shifted now. And, and the fact that, you know, the FBI is using this on like Black Lives Matter protests in January 6th, you're like, people think the threat is coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways they're right at this mm -hmm. point. And that makes that geographic bubble um, – totally disappear, mm -hmm, right? Totally. It's, it's not, last time our conversation was, well, what if someone's in the United States talking to someone outside the mm -hmm, United States? Can right. you monitor that conversation? And the answer was, well, yes, because we're afraid of 9-11 happening again. Mm -hmm. um, so we can pierce that bubble in that way. But if you're a person in the U.S. talking to another person in the U.S., that's that's private. And that's not that's not where we're. That's not what we're afraid or of anymore. Get, right. yeah. Or you get a warrant. Or you, right? get, a warrant. Or, or you which, get a warrant, which, which is, is the whole thing. Which makes, about. Which makes right. all sense, right? right. If yeah. you say the the problem is within the house, if you say, oh well, we are much more worried now about white nationalism. That's right. We yeah. are worried about people who ostensibly are protesting, but really Domestic are trying terrorists. to do more. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fine. You go to a judge and you say, right. I this person we think is a threat, and blah blah blah, and we. Do they call it tapping your phone anymore? Is that even a thing? I don't know. They call it metadata. <laughs> right. Okay. Thank you. So that's fine. Yeah. But this idea that we'll hold on, right? And again, thinking through the generation, how old is John Ossoff? But right, isn't he like forty-seven? Five? No. Um, he's, he's late thirties. Is he I think? late? Right. I don't think he's Maybe even he, in forty. I don't think he's forty yet. Yeah. He might be. But if you think about to your point about two thousand and one, right? Yeah. This is not. Somebody who has known of a world right. pre, of course, right. terrorists are coming to get us. Right. We have to have this warrantless search because there's no other way to, you know, we yeah. got to make sure that the threat yeah. doesn't come to uh, onto our shores. But it is a very hard argument to make now, not just because the technology has changed, but because uh, we know so much of, um, you know, 
the abuse that yeah. could happen. Yeah. But I think the other thing that's different to your point about the technology that's changed is, you know, people for for the past couple of decades as this has been continuing to evolve, people have been okay with private companies having way mm-hmm, more data totally. than the government, right? Mm-hmm. And in part because it makes things really convenient. Yeah. You know, Ron and I were having a great conversation about being Instagrammed earlier, and then you're like, cool, that is a jumpsuit that I want to yeah. buy. One click, done. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for my <laughs> Apple Pay and it coming exactly. directly to my home. Exactly. And and I'm in that category too. And so I think, you know, there were always the folks like Ron Wyden who were like, this is where this is going to go. The government's mm-hmm. going to get this data. If anyone has it, the government's going to get it. And he's been on that yeah. since the 90s. He's yeah. the only person in Congress who's been on that since the 90s. But, you know, it it's now we're seeing if if the government is saying anything publicly available includes anything that I could potentially buy from anyone. Mm-hmm. That pierces that veil. Mm-hmm. That means anything that any private company has access to can yeah. go to the FBI. Yeah. And that is a totally different it's, world. It's a scary yeah. place. So yeah. I think I mean, if if that's truly what we're gonna say is public, yeah. like that's everything. Yeah. They don't have to do their you can, own. You can buy everything surveillance. you want. Like, like the, 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 all the Experian data dumps, the AT&T. There's so been so many breaches of the most sensitive and intimate information on American citizens that like you can buy it anywhere. Right. And yeah. a couple of years ago when we had um, one of the shooters that had his cell phone and they, the government got in a big fight with Apple about whether right. they would unlock, unlock the cell it. phone. Right. Yep. Well, if they could have just said, here's a check, we'll buy the data. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't need the hack. That, that doesn't <laughs> seem right to me. And it seems very scary because I I am one of those people who kind of trust private companies to like use my data in a way that's helpful to me and I'm not that concerned about it. But if they're selling that to the government, mm-hmm. I'm like, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah. I don't really like that to your point yeah. about Dobbs, yeah. you know, to to yeah. a lot of these places that are, you know, in a Ron DeSantis administration. Like, how are they going to be using that power? I don't feel very comfortable yeah. with that. And I wonder if that is going to make a difference to this new generation that's grown up with, of course, they're going to know where I am. Like, why wouldn't they know right. where I am? Yeah. My parents have a tracker on right. me, essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I want to just reprise um, Mike Madrid here for a minute. My friend Mike Madrid is frequent politicology uh, guest. Uh, one of my, my ride or die in Ukraine when we went there, um, which is this idea that uh, privacy, as we're talking about it, and specifically privacy as a check against government um, authority or abuse uh, is maybe has the potential to be seen as the new second amendment, whereas the second Mm. amendment originally its original purpose was essentially to defend against Mm. abuse of of the Mm. government. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's useless. Now, if the government Mm. wants to come like, you know, bulldoze your, your house with a tank, they're going to do it. The mill, like your rifle's not going to stop them. Uh, However, um, maybe, Privacy, secured cryptographically, perhaps, could be a new way for people to um, uh, protect themselves against intrusion from the government. What do you and, guys- and having a, a conversation about privacy that is approachable. So yeah. I think you mm-hmm. hear the term privacy yeah. and we immediately get to, well, everybody knows everything about me because – Right. I like Apple Pay and I really don't. I mean, I remember so specifically the first time I typed my credit card onto a website and I was like, this is so stupid. Why am I doing this? Like, I just, okay. Right. Like out there. That's that's it. I'm going to totally get hacked. All my money's going to be gone. But 
God, I really do like that shirt. Oh, it's so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Like it just overpowered my brain just screaming at me that this is so dangerous. Um, The first time I got into an Uber, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be murdered. This is insane. Why am I getting into a stranger's car? I remember that feeling. Right? So we are— Uh, So we have to have that same conversation, which is to say, yes, you're so comfortable doing this. Mm -hmm. Now let's take it to what else, where else your Mm -hmm. information Mm -hmm. is going Mm -hmm. Um, and why, what this means. When we say privacy, it's not just about that, that Apple has all your stuff or that. It's what is government doing once it gets it? What are the rules? Right. And what what are the rules to ensure that? Because I hear like we're having a panel on privacy and literally my eyes are like (laughs) glaze over. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then we're going to they have we're at Section 702 Uh and the Uh FISA. Right. And you just go this. uh, This has nothing to do with me or Mm. what other people would. Another reaction would be. I'm not, I don't commit crimes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's good. I got nothing to worry about. I, I got nothing, nothing to hide. To, I got nothing to hide. No. And now you say, well, do you track your period? Do you mm-hmm. track mm-hmm. your, you know, whatever other things that you have, yeah. your um, heart rate monitor, whatever it is. I'm wearing a strap there right now mm-hmm. that measures like, I don't know, a dozen different biomarkers and, right. and like signals about what my body is doing right, right now. And that information and is going into the cloud. Right. Mm-hmm. It's all a little bit, right? So- this is a I think it's a it's a fascinating conversation in the same way that the social network um, yeah. documentary mm-hmm. was a really good way to help, especially again, younger folks yeah. understand what social what this is. Yeah. 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 John Ossoff is 36, by the way. OK. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Baby. OK, uh, now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar, over the wherever it falls on the radar, uh, Amy, what'd you bring for us? I mean, some of unfortunately, I already, <laughs> I already used it. But I wish I had held on to. I wish I had held on to it, um, which was this thing about watching these vulnerable House Republicans as we're going through this process, especially in the defense of Trump. But um, something else I'm writing about this week is um, a new. Analysis of Latino voters by mm. um, Eki's, uh, which does a lot of great work. They are a progressive organization. I like working with them because, yes, they have a point of view, but their data is they are not trying to sugarcoat mm. or, you know, wrap it into some narrative. And it, it raised two really interesting uh, points, I think, about 2024. The first is that these voters who showed up in 2020 but didn't show up in 2018 or 2020 are very open to persuasion by Republicans. Mm. They're very open Mm. to voting for Republicans. So this idea that, well, just because Democrats did well with Latinos in 2022 or as well as they did in 2020, that should not be seen as a sign that Mm. there's the possibility of more erosion could not happen. But the other thing that I found very interesting about these same voters is um, it also pushes back on the narrative that Republicans are doing better with Latinos because they're seen as the multicultural working class party, right? (laughs) You've heard that a a lot. The reason I think they see uh, Republicans as good on the economy is that, right, they know Republicans have money and they Mm -hmm. talk about business Mm -hmm. and they talk about – so they say, yes, I think that – when it comes to inflation, cost of living, I think Republicans do a better job than Democrats. Okay, well, who do you think looks out 
for you? Who do you think is the party that looks out for rich people? Oh, the Republicans, mm-hmm. right? So they are holding both of those mm-hmm. at the yeah. same mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it is this idea that they're moving into saying, oh, I see Republicans as fighting for the working people. What they see is Republicans know how to make money. I don't know if it's exactly this, but something of the value. If we're in, in a tough economic time, the Republicans are going to find a way to focus on the economy, and that's good, and hopefully get me a job. But do I think that they're out there saying we're with the little guy? Mm-hmm. We're going to make sure that the little guy is getting taken care of? Not, not so much. that's not there yet. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. There's still so much trickle down like in exactly. there, right? Like it'll be better for me because the whole thing will be better. And my perpetual frustration is we always ask this question about um, uh, for each party, do you think that they're more focused on the economy or more focused on social issues? Mm. I was having a conversation with someone yesterday who was like, we just need to make the case that the Republicans are the ones that are focused on social issues. And I'm like, People have said that to me for my entire career, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work (laughs) because every single time, no matter how many DeSantis's are out there, people will say, yeah, I think Republicans are focused on the economy. And they'll say, I think Democrats are focused on social issues. And I'm like, my my perennial example of this is when all the marriage bans were being put on the ballot. And then we had a poll in the field and said, who do you think is is bringing up this issue? They were like, huh, it's the Democrats. It's the gays. And I'm like, it's <laughs> a ban. Literally it's Bush Cheney for it. It's a ban. <laughs> Why would I put that on the ballot, friend? But it just, it doesn't work because that's our brand. We care about, you know, social care, issues. And care about, right. And yeah. so and sometimes it's if, if it's caring about you, mm-hmm. what... Uh, the Obama campaign learned how to turn that into actually an economic that's right. argument, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the economy not doing great still? Yeah, that's right. But at least Obama's trying and he's working with you. And remember Mitt Romney, he's just a vicious capitalist who uh, puts his dog on his right. car. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Half y'all are takers. Yeah. 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 Well, here we are. What'd um, you bring? So... I also used my earlier one uh, about how Kevin McCarthy is going to have to shut down the government in September because now they're reneging on the the debt ceiling appropriations deal. Um, so I'll, I'll bring something else that I've been watching and I've been really scared about that happened this week, which is, do you remember the Hyde Amendment? The Hyde uh-huh. Amendment is yeah. the rider that we put on any federal bill anytime that has anything to do with health care that says no federal tax money can go to pay for abortions. Uh-huh. And it, it's caused, you know, m- countless um, fights on the Hill over and over again. Um, you know, it's it's but it's but it remains to be the case that we have literally in the ACA, we made uh, an exception that says even though most 90 percent of private insurers cover abortion because it's cheaper to get an abortion than to have a baby, uh, we actually make you pay a separate one dollar to that insurance company hmm. for your abortion coverage hmm. so that the subsidy that you're getting from the government is not paying for an abortion. Like it is it's a thing, right? They're now turning it on gender affirming care. And it is so scary. So this week I got an email from one of the um, openly gay members on the Hill because I've been doing a lot of work around trans youth. And they were like, we're going to have this hearing. And there is a bill that is about funding children's hospitals for research for um, for rare diseases and cancers and things like that. And they're putting a rider on it that says if anyone at this hospital does any kind of gender affirming care for someone under the age of 18, they can't have any of this money. 
and it is the hospital can't the hospital can't for mm. cancer for mm. research around rare children's diseases for anything and it it is terrifying to me because i i think this is our next fight is that we're going to and there's a lot of federal money that goes into healthcare and so there's a lot of places that they can put this and say you know Anybody who's funded by Medicaid or Medicare, anybody who's funded by, um, you know, any of the research money that we give to hospitals, um, you know, anybody who's regulated by the federal government, they're going to find a way to make it impossible to provide gender-affirming care without banning gender-affirming care. And that is horrifying to me, and I think we need to get ahead of it and figure out how to stop it because that is a a world I don't want to live in. Is it all forms of gender-affirming care? Include like including talk therapy and stuff, or is it just the medical? The way they articulated it in here was anything they they did not specifically talk about mental health. Although I think you could probably use it for that as well. They specifically articulated anything that involved physical treatment, including hormone blockers, including um, obviously cross gender hormones if you're blocking the hormones, and and um, and any kind of treatment that would involve a doctor. And we've seen this happening. You know, Florida just passed a bunch of laws that um, make it near impossible for trans adults to get care because there's, um, you know, because they said you can't actually get it from a physician assistant anymore. That's where 80% of trans adults were getting their care because there's not a lot of access to to a doctor doctor. I mean, I get most of my care from a physician assistant. Um, And so I see that going away of the abortion stuff too, where it's like, oh, your hallway needs to be bigger. And there's just going to make it impossible for certainly trans youth, but but also trans adults to get access to the medically necessary care that they need. And I, I just really want to raise the alarm to folks about this because it was under the radar and we, you know, sent out a bunch of guidance about it and everyone was like, thank you, because no one's talking about mm. this. So please talk about it, think about it, think about how we can get ahead of this because we cannot live in a world where people are not able to access medically necessary care. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss the Supreme Court's decision rejecting racially gerrymandered voting maps in Alabama that diluted that diluted black voters' power, where can everybody find you, follow your work on the internet, Lene? I'm at Lene Erickson on Twitter, although most of that content is about my sparkle shoes. You can find <laughs> my work at thirdway.org. You just testified before Congress I testified in your sparkle in shoes. In my sparkle shoes. And the, the committee staff uh, did aver that I was the first one who had done it. So, uh, wow. yeah, no, but it's Amazing. it's important uh, to actually go to thirdway.org because that's where the work that's where is. Where <laughs> okay. Although the shoes, really, they're important. <laughs> they're fun. Yeah, they are fun. All the places you can be found, All Amy. the places. So Cook Political com uh, is the number one place to go. I um, also do not have any Instagram or Snap or anything in that. I don't know how to use those, so I still use Twitter at, at Amy E. Walter. And we have a podcast now that you can get um, on Yield, whatever they're called now, platforms for, <laughs> for podcasts. Um, uh, it's called the off years, uh, and it's the Cook Political Report talking about all kinds of cool stuff about Terrific. politics. Did Wasserman, Wasserman do it with you? He did. We did one. We haven't done one yet, but we have done one about. Uh, well, we got really in the weeds. The goal okay. is to this will transition as we get into the on years yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. into conversations 
in the weeds. Got it. I want to know how you're going to get the podcast online when you're in Maine and have no access to <laughs> I know it. That's, see, that's a, that's a problem. That's we're going to go back to the, the A-Tracks conversation we were oh having before. Yeah. Totally. I'm totally into that. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>